The Center for Thinking Biblically is a ministry of the Masters University. Visit thinkbiblically.org for more information. So why do human beings invent culture? What is the origin of culture? This is something very few of us ever really think about. And I remember many years ago when I was in college, I read Hamlet and it just about knocked me off my chair. I'd never read anything like it before. It was actually probably only the second or third Shakespeare play I'd ever read. And afterwards, I just sat there wondering, how could any human mind have created something so complex? The great Yale literary critic Harold Bloom said, Hamlet, the character, is the only literary character intelligent enough to have written the play in which he appears. And I think that's a brilliant observation. Great art, great cultural artifacts and objects are things that take us out of ourselves. This is why I love taking students to Italy, because they are simply removed from a certain kind of self-focus. They become aware of beauty and of thought and of precision and order and balance in a way that perhaps they've never considered before. But why have these things? All we really need are food, water, clothing, shelter. Beyond that, everything is superfluous. It's nice to have friendships, social relationships, families, but you don't absolutely have to have those things, not to live. So why did human beings develop culture? And so I began thinking about where culture came from and what would be its ultimate purpose. Is it, is it just a frivolous add-on? Is it a nice fringe that you don't really need but is enjoyable? Is it purely aesthetic? Is it merely philosophical? And I began to think that it must have some kind of theologically grounded origin. Something about man's spiritual nature brings him to a place where he has to produce culture. And these days, all of my writing and teaching and speaking is grounded in a theory of the origins of culture, which I link back to the suppression of truth as Paul describes it in Romans chapter 1 and then expands on it, rather, in Acts chapter 17. But in order to really understand the origins of culture, we have to go back to what I believe is the best historical grounding we can find, and that is Moses' first book, the book of Genesis. Now everyone, even pagans, are quite familiar with the book of Genesis. Everybody knows about Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and the creation of the world. Whether they believe it or not, everyone knows the basic outline of the story. Everyone understands that scripture teaches that Adam and Eve were created male and female by God out of the dust of the ground. Whether they believe it or not, everyone's heard the story. It is a story that is from outside of our culture, but has taken its place inside of our culture. And, of course, everyone knows the familiar story, the great narrative in Genesis 3 of the temptation and fall of Eve and of Adam. And if you studied a little theology, you'll understand that there was something about the fall of Adam as the federal head of the human race that was particularly bad and launched all of mankind into an endless series of disasters. But if you ask the average person what happens next, they kind of stop. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Paradise is lost, so to speak. But what happens after that? Because it's always interesting to think through not just the causes and the origins of things, but also the chain of entailment and causality that comes out from any particular event. And what happens after Genesis 3 is Adam and Eve may have been 
yeah, just a little bit cocky. They were certainly fallen, but they realized that the promised judgment of death hadn't really come. Until one day, Eve probably said to Adam, can you get the boys? It's time for dinner. And they didn't get a return call from their two sons, went out and looked for them and found their dead son out in the field. The first human death and the first time that Adam and Eve saw the real results of sin and disobedience was when they saw the death of their own child, the most unspeakable thing imaginable, and in its worst form, a brother murdering his brother. And at that point, most people kind of stop reading carefully and paying attention. But I think that that's a mistake, because as we get into Genesis 4, we begin to get a genealogy of the post fall and post-expulsion human experience. And along the way, we get these little throwaway verses that don't really get a lot of attention. We find out that Cain and his descendants kind of uh, move into a certain area and they build cities. So for the very first time, we get urbanization. And some of the people become shepherds and herders and agricultural workers. So we get agriculture in the countryside and, a, and a, a concentration of human beings in the city. So when we normally think of culture now, we think of New York City, not the plains of Nebraska. We don't think of agriculture as part of culture, even though in many ways agriculture is the root of city life. You can't live in a city unless you have food imported in from the countryside. And so we get the, develop, the, the, the development of the kind of pastoral countryside where people are living together, producing food, and that food is what makes it possible for the, to live in the concentrated urban areas of the cities. And so both of those represent culture, just culture of a different kind, city culture and agriculture. But if we go a little bit further in the middle of the text of Genesis 4, we find that some other things begin to develop. For instance, we find that there is one of the descendants of Cain who develops music, right? He is the father of all those who play the harp and the lyre. And then another one of these descendants becomes the father of those who work metal. In other words, in very early human history, what we would probably call prehistory, technically speaking, people figure out how to do certain things that are very culturally grounded. They figure out how to dig things out of the ground, rocks out of the ground, and heat them up and smelt out the valuable metal in the ancient world. And at the same time, people are figuring out how to use wood and metal to make musical instruments. Now, if you stop and think about the invention of music, can you imagine what life would be like without music? How many songs do you have in your head? How many hymns do you have in your head? How many pieces of classical music do you have in your head? How many pop songs do you have in your head? Music becomes very much the center of our audial world. At the same time of the invention of music, we have the invention of metallurgy, the ability to take and smelt ore so that we can get workable metals out of it. Well, there's a few things that people would do, especially in the ancient world, with these smelted metals. For one thing, they began to make farm implements. Instead of digging with your hands, you could plow a field with a bronze and later an iron plow. And as they figure out how to make better and better iron and eventually learn how to make steel, they're making metal that is so tough it can tear through any kind of soil or even through rocks. The other thing, of course, that people are doing with these metals that they're pulling out is they're making weapons. As a matter of fact, I think it's fair to say that all human technology eventually becomes one of two kinds. It is either used to make your life better, musical instruments, plows, or to kill the other guy and take their stuff. 
to make your life better. The other thing that we know, because they survived as ancient artifacts, is they begin to make statuary. They begin to create dimensional art. And imagine what they do with music and little statues of their gods. They begin dancing around and worshiping these false gods. You see it all over the Old Testament. You see it in ancient Assyrian relief sculpture. You see it all over ancient literature. Human beings who have rejected God produce cultural objects which represent the idolatry of their own heart. That's what culture begins as. Now, does this mean that you can't watch a movie or an opera or read a novel or look at a poem or own a sword or a gun for that matter? Does that mean that uh, cultural implements that are used to make agriculture more productive are somehow or another so wrapped up in sin that we shouldn't use them? Of course not. It requires discernment to understand what God does and does not permit us to do or participate in, culturally speaking. So if we find in Genesis 4 the origins of culture in the post-fall and post-expulsion world, how does that have to do with suppression of truth? Well, in the opening of the first explicitly theological book of the New Testament canon, Paul's letter to the Roman Christians, we find as soon as Paul completes his salutation, he then launches into an indictment of humanity. And what he says that humanity has done after the fall is this. You have to understand, this is the first piece of explicitly theological propositional teaching in the New Testament canon. The first thing he says that human beings, having fallen away from God, now live in a state where we are continually suppressing the truth. Well, what truth? Well, what truth are we talking about? And I think that Paul is both implicit and explicit here. He says that those things about God, about his creation of the world, his authorship and his disposition of the world, his judgeship of all of his creation, his conservatorship of everything, all of that is known by all of his creation. And those of us who are the highest and most sentient and most self-aware of all of his living beings have an absolute knowledge that there is a God, that he is the creator, that he is the author and the disposer of all things, and that he is holy and righteous and good and stands righteously in judgment of all of his creation that has rebelled against him, particularly humanity. Now, if humanity knows the truth about God, and that truth is painful to bear, that it is unbearably painful to think that we are rebels, that we are slaves to our own wicked desires, that we have turned against our Creator who is good and who is holy. And if it is inexpressibly torturous for us to recognize that we have in fact rejected the being who gives all grounding of meaning to our lives, then human beings live in fact in a miserable state and condition. And when you're miserable, what do you try to do? Well, the fallen human being that is miserable and recognizes it really only has one choice, and that choice is, I've got to end the misery. Now, most people choose not to end their lives, but everyone chooses to end their misery. And there are a number of ways you can do this. The one way, according to Paul in Romans chapter 1, that all of us choose to end our misery is to choose to end our consciousness of the misery. You see, if you can manage to forget that you're miserable, you won't feel as miserable. That's the idea. So human beings, I believe, according to Paul, are in a constant struggle with the truth that they know, 
the reality of their fallenness, their brokenness, the fact that they have rejected the God of the universe who is beautiful and holy and perfect and deserves our worship and our obedience. And that knowledge, that truth is unbearable. And because it's unbearable, but also unavoidable, what we actually do is we lie to ourselves and we lie to each other and we lie to God. But all those lies are futile. Because every time you tell a lie, you know it's a lie. Now, the way that I can deceive you is I can say, can I borrow $20 from you on Monday and I'll give it to you next Tuesday. Now, I know I'm never going to give it back, but you're a trusting soul, so you can be deceived. I know I'm lying. You don't. That's how lying works. That's how you're deceived. But how do you lie to yourself? If you lie to yourself, you know you're lying. And yet, Human beings are so fallen, so dark, and so twisted that we can convince ourselves over time that the lie is the truth, which is exactly what Paul says. They have, they have expressly uh, switched, they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And so you keep telling yourself the lie until you begin to believe it. And yet every time you lie, you know it's a lie. There is no God, the fool says in his heart. Well, you know that's a lie. You know you're a fool for saying it, and that's unbearable. So how do you bear the unbearable? You lie. That's not really a lie. That's really the truth. But you know that that's a lie. Nope, that's actually the truth. And what happens is human beings construct a labyrinth of lies, and that's what human consciousness is. We are a labyrinth of lies that we have told ourselves and that we have used to create a culture around ourselves that will tell us things that are not true about ourselves and about God. That's where atheism comes from. That's where political lies come from. That's where cultural lies come from. Human beings are trapped in a labyrinth of lies of their own construction, and they are unaware because of the continual lying that that is actually the state of nature in which they exist. Now, if human beings live in a labyrinth of lies, and if culture is the product of our consciousness, then all culture is ultimately the product of the suppression of truth. Now, here's a problem. If you're trying to escape from someone, and let's say you're out in the forest in the snow, they're gonna find you quickly because you've left a track. So. Any clever person knows what to do. You break off a tree branch, you start walking backwards through the forest and erase your tracks. Now, you know you're erasing the tracks, but the problem is when we try to do that inside of our conscious framework, the labyrinth of lies, we constantly know that we're suppressing the truth. And our only option is to suppress the truth that we're suppressing the truth. And then you end up with that infinite parallel mirror situation where you're constantly suppressing the truth, that you're constantly suppressing the truth, that you're constantly suppressing the truth. This is why human beings are so miserable and confused, because we live in a labyrinth of lies of our own construction. And I believe that human beings, because of the fallen state, are trapped in this labyrinth and yet are obsessed with creating culture. How do we create culture? We still bear within ourselves the echoes of truth, and goodness, and beauty. We all know what justice is, and we all want justice for the other guy. For us, we want grace. All of us understand these certain universals. They are wired into us right into the marrow of our bones. And therefore, what we create, the image of perfect heroes, of inimitable beauty, of beautiful rhetoric, of fabulous conceptions of a just world, all of those things leave us longing for what 
we don't have because for every one of us, paradise is in fact lost. Thank you for listening to the Center for Thinking Biblically podcast. To help support this ministry, please visit thinkbiblically.org forward slash donate. To learn more about the Masters University on campus and online undergraduate and graduate programs, visit masters.edu.